but mm. the mafia is an invention in the sense of the narrative that it creates of the US, not of Italy. So this is just to set the stage. When it comes to Italy, it took a while for Italy to recognize mafia type organization, which is what we call it today. The Ndrangheta is present worldwide, and by worldwide, I don't mean that they are everywhere, but I mean that they have been active in many different countries and arrests of Ndrangheta men have been made in at least 28, 29 countries around the world. And among these countries, we have the United States, we have, the, we have Canada, we have Venezuela, we have Argentina, we have um, Uruguay, Bolivia, uh, Peru, we have Mexico, of course, we have uh, Australia, I can go on. Hello, and welcome to the History of Drugs in Society. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. This week, I got to speak to Professor Anna Sergi, who is a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Essex. We got to cover a few main areas of her research, including Italian organized crime overall, the Andrangheta, both in Italy and internationally, as well as the role of shipping in global cocaine markets, which is an area in which the Andrangheta is heavily involved. If you ever heard my About the Podcast episode, you might remember that Italian organized crime groups in the New York area, particularly the Sicilian La Cosa Nostra, was what initially piqued my own interest in the world of organized crime and drugs. So it was really interesting for me to get to talk to Anna about the state of Italian mafias today and just how prominent the Andrangheta has become in the last few decades. I'll link to some of Anna's work in the show notes, and I highly recommend you follow her on Twitter as she posts and links to great news stories and research. If you find the part of our conversation about the connection between shipping and cocaine intriguing, check out her ebook called The Port Crime Interface as well. Also, we recorded this at the end of June. Again, apologies for my sickly delays. So I didn't get a chance to ask her about some of the news that broke over the summer in terms of the EncroChat phones and the related large-scale drug bust across Europe, or the Andrangheta's potential links to Wirecard, just to name two. On to the interview. Hello, so I'm Anna Sergi, I'm a doctor in uh, sociology. I work as a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Essex, and my main interest is organized crime. And to set the stage for the conversation, and specifically thinking of organized crime in the context uh, of a single country with Italy, uh, I know when I was growing up and just starting to look at the subject, I mistakenly thought that the, the mafia was this one large kind of nefarious organization, when the realities of it are uh, much more uh, nuanced. And at the very least, there are not just one, but a few major yeah. organizations in Italy. Yeah. Uh, would you mind just kind of briefly mentioning at a very high level, what, what are the organizations and, and yeah, where they come from within the country? Yeah, well, I, if, I, if I may, I will start with a premise. So I think the reasons why many people like yourself, but not just you, um, have this concept of the mafia as the, you know, this massive octopus hierarchical organization that is one and, and, and the same um, in Italy and then moved to the US and uh, did an awful lot of bad things, the mob and all of that, is because the actual, the imagery, the narrative of the mafia is American, is not Italian. Mm-hmm. So in Italy, we actually borrowed some of the Americanization of the concept and we moved it to our country later. So just to give you um, a brief example, uh, our anti-mafia law in Italy is 1982. American RICO, the racketeering 
Infiltrated and Corrupt Organization Act, which is born to tackle the mob, is 1970. So before that happened, a narrative of the mafia with the capital M was already developed in the US. But the mafia is an invention in the sense of the narrative that it creates of the US, not of Italy. So this is just to set the stage. When it comes to Italy, it took a while for Italy to recognize mafia type organization, which is what we call it today. For a number of reasons, obviously, these these things, organized crime uh, has has existed everywhere. It exists in Italy since, what, the unification of the country, probably, which happened late, but still, it's over 150 years ago now. But essentially, we defined mafia very late. And the reason for this definition was that it appeared to be behaving differently depending on where one was looking. So when you look at Sicily and you looked at the way mafia emerged in Sicily, which was to, had to do with the feudal system and the territorial rezoning um, of, the, of the region, and then a number of things that had to do with the special character of the island of Sicily in the political realm of the Italian state, that, was, that looked very different from, let's say, this, the city of Naples, where uh, criminal groups were a lot more urban, a lot more violent, a lot less involved in politics, a lot more involved in money-making. So it took a while until we figured out that there were things in common across these groups, and mostly all of these groups had connected, um, let's say, aims and features. So to answer finally your question, uh, we today we call mafia what uh, the Italian penal code defines as mafia. It's a very tautological argument. But basically, Article 416 bis of the Italian Criminal Code says that a mafia is a non-lawful association that uses the power of intimidation that comes from the reputation of the group to instill fear and uh, produce omerta, so the, the attitude of silence for protection of the mafia members, for basically financial benefits or other type of benefits that the group itself, not just a single individual, can have. So this is a mafia association. According to Italian law, there are five mafia associations. One is Sicilian Cosa Nostra, which is probably the most well-known when it comes to popular culture. It's, It's the one you were thinking of when you were a child, probably in a little bit of a dramatized way, due to Hollywood. Uh, then we have the Calabrian Drangheta, which is the one I research the most, uh, today's most powerful Italian mafia. Um, then there is the Neapolitan Campania region Camorra, uh, the one of the Gomorra series, if you are interested in TV series. Then you have the Apulian mafia. Part of it has been uh, obviously involved in the... Um, in the judicial system, let's say, with the judicial system. They are called La Sacra Corona Unita, the United Sacred Crown, very resounding name. Uh, And then you have a small mafia, which is officially defunct, so it's dead, uh, which is called the Familia Basiliski, the Basiliski family, which is in the region of Basilicata. Across this, you have various other groups which um, have been sentenced as unlawful association with a mafia, uh, let's say, flavor. So it's another judicial way of targeting unlawful associations. And these are, these are various in, across the country. 
But the main ones are the ones from the South, for a number of reasons that we can't possibly get into. The South has had this infamous relationship with mafia power. All of them share uh, interesting profits. They want to make money, surprise. Uh, but also a very tight engagement with their territory. They want to coordinate the commerce in the territory they belong to. They want to uh, use their power to... Um, gain social prestige across their communities. They aim at power and governance power, essentially. So they want to govern. They don't just want to trade, as my colleague Federico Varese has said. So, yeah, so essentially we have this um, very different organizations which eventually aim at the same things, profit and power. While most organized crime groups, if you think of some uh, drug trafficking organization in Latin America, for example, they only deal in trade. They only want to make money. They are profit-oriented. Mafias are both. So when you think about it that way, you see that every country has a lot more mafias than we initially thought. And Italy eventually has five official ones and several other. (laughs) And you mentioned that one of the main goals of these organizations is very much to, to make money. And uh, one of the organizations that you focus on, especially, and I apologize ahead of time for butchering it for the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the interview, but with the with the Ndrangheta, how, if I'm not mistaken, I saw the stat that they would be some uh, a pretty much a top ten company if they were a legal business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how does someone like that organization make their money? So the Ndrangheta, and you pronounce it very well, congrats. Um, so the Ndrangheta is officially the honor society. Okay, so that's the, it's a Greek etymology. They are a conglomerate of clans. They are not a unique organization. They are not hierarchical in the sense that we came to think of Cosa Nostra. In, in the sense that there are no uh, top-bottom decision made. So the way in which... They make money, let's say, is by don't, they don't mind each other. Everyone does whatever the hell they want. And unless something happens and they have to resort to coordination structures and uh, fixing problem structures. So the Ndrangheta is a conglomerate of clans. It's been defined as an archipelago of clans. So a lot of little islands, which kind of are all aware of each other, but they don't quite interact with each other unless they have to. So in that sense, it's a pulviscura, it's a, it's a reticular organization, it's not a coordinated set of actions. Uh, and it is true that um, if you consider all of the clans, um, they are very rich, but um, it's very difficult, first of all, to count these things. So I would be very wary of believing any, anything you hear and read about the 44 billions euros turnover of Dendrangheta every year. It's very difficult to count black figures, obviously. These are black market figures. But it is true that all combined, these clans have a a wealth power that very few can have. And their their structure is the key. The structure, which is not a structure, is being aware of one another and at the same time cooperating when they have to and trying to keep away from trouble. So this structure is way more powerful in a world like the one of today, a lot more liquid, as we said it many times in sociological studies, uh, than a heavy hierarchical organization, which is unfortunately not in line with time. The Ndrangheta is very much in line with time in this sense. So that's how they make Mm -hmm. their money, by basically remaining unit level, meaning family, blood family level. 
And in terms of the specific activities that they get involved in to then generate some of those funds, given the structure that you just outlined, yeah. uh, earlier today you had tweeted, or at least on the day that we're recording, you had tweeted that the, I'll just read the exactly, how the mafia infiltrated Italy's hospitals and laundered the profits globally, uh, and pretty much alluding to the fact that that could be seen as a uh, failure of the state in Calabria in the home yeah. region. So it seems as though they're they're not just in kind of drugs or arms running or the typical, mm. you know, the quote unquote, typical black market activities, but it seems as though they're really expanding as well into other areas. Mm. I think the best way to answer this is to have you think about Drangheta clans um, as family dynasties. So if you are familiar or if, if you will be familiar at some point after this, um, the concept of, of family dynasties, which is a very typical entrepreneurialism uh, based on family businesses, which stayed on, stays on generation after generation. This is probably the best way to understand um, what this mafia is about. Each family has its own activity. Some of them excel at drug trafficking. Some of them excel at money laundering. Some of them excel at... Uh, arms trafficking, some others are just into extortion, some others are into very elaborate um, cyber uh, gambling, uh, some others are extremely good at infiltrating politics and uh, having um, contracts uh, from you know for public services, for example, because they have uh, licit companies that they can use as front to access public funds. Uh, so it really depends on the family. So it's a, it's a family skill. So you, you know pretty much who is who in terms of who are the best drug traffickers, who are the most involved with cocaine, who are the most involved with, into cyber stuff. So you, you learn when you, you know the territory of Calabria and in terms of mafia territory, you, you learn who does what. So in the case that you mentioned today, uh, there are a couple of families in the east coast of Calabria, in the province of Crotone, and these have been particularly well-versed uh, into accessing public funds, uh, including European funds. You might remember, and if you don't, I, I'm reminding you of a couple of years ago, no, actually more than a couple of years ago, it must have been 2016, uh, there was a massive operation in Calabria in what happens to be the main refugee camp of Europe, uh, which is called the Caradi of Crotone. So the main refugee camp in Europe. So is in Calabria. A lot of funding from the European Union was obviously poured into this project. Some of these funds were hijacked from the same mafia family that today you find involved into this um, investment scam, essentially fraud uh, of uh, bonds into healthcare. So these families are particularly well-versed into high finance. And the reasons for that has to do with um, the right brokers. They know the right people with the right skills who have studied abroad or in Italy. They've studied finance in Milan or London or New York. Uh, they come back, they, they service the mafia family because it's money and it's, it's convenient. And it's some, most of the time it's family business. So this is, this is how. But then you'll find other families completely opposite who are very basic in the organized crime they do. They do drugs, always done drugs, will always do drugs maybe. Uh, but they become sort of persons of reference for the kind of market in the kind of place. So it's very difficult for anyone else to step into their shoes. So this is, um, it's very varied. I haven't seen one single business 
in my entire research that has not been connected to Dendrangheta at any stage. So anything from a chocolate factory in Switzerland to a flower, the flower market in Amsterdam, to a power plant, photovoltaic plants in the Tuscany region, to, I don't know, any kind of business and big industry that you can think of that has always been someone interested. Because there are, we are talking about at least 160, 170 families, all of which have the potential to invest in more than one type of crime. So it's, it's an exponential growth that um, it's difficult even to, to picture, I think. And is much known about how these different families coordinate each other? Or have there been noted instances where two mm. families getting into a sing, uh, you know, if one is already established in an area and another mm. starts uh, acting in that area, does that seem uh, like encroachment and can cause kind yeah. of issues within the organization? Yeah, okay, so the Ndrangheta is very old. Um, it's at least as old as the Sicilian Mafia, so we are talking mid of the 19th centuries at the very least. Uh, this is when we first learned of it. Um, so it's a, it's a very old organization which has um, which counts a lot, and I'm a, I have to add a lot, on the power of tradition. So in that sense, there, has, there, there are some uh, rituals uh, and some structures that uh, somehow... Um, rely on these rituals for affiliation and for alliances that are still today in operation. So there is a lot that is known about Ndrangheta, but not as much as we would like, in a way. Uh, obviously, uh, what we know in terms of public and even researchers is not as much as maybe police or authorities know, but from what is known generally from the available sources, we do know that there are some, um, there have been some main key points in history when the Ndrangheta clans have developed and entered the next step of their history. So just to make a very complicated story a bit simpler, uh, you might want to think of the history of the Ndrangheta as before the 90s and after the 90s. So before the 90s, the Ndrangheta families were mostly local, so exploiting their own territory and no one was basically you know, worried about anything else. Uh, they were, uh, some of them, some families were associated with Cosa Nostra, with the Sicilian clans, which at the time were more powerful and more into international um, trade. So the heroin trade, especially with the US. So some of these families, because of this double affiliation, did manage to somehow jump up the ranking and together with other families who, who instead were kind of considered the gatekeepers of the whole of the organization, they were the ones who keep in and, and keep on the, the secrets of the Ndrangheta in terms of the spirituality and the rituality of it, which is extremely bound into re religion, into the Calabrian tradition, into a number of other cultural elements that maybe we can talk about later. So... There are some clans who are more important than others. And then at some point, when while the Italian state was very heavily concentrated on Cosa Nostra, some of these Drangheta clans managed to somehow get out of the shadow. And a number of things happened for this out-of-the-shadow moment to succeed. Namely, the entry into the cocaine market on one side, and on the other side, the um, ability to stop the wars so up until the 90s, because of the geography of Calabria, which is very rocky mountains and kind of 
difficult land to navigate, very difficult sometimes. Uh, I would invite you to go on Google and just Google Calabria and see how long it takes to go from one place to the other, which is not the normal distances that you would imagine. Sometimes it takes, I don't know, 20 kilometers, 45 minutes. Why? So these very difficult things uh, in terms of infrastructure. But anyway, I'm the going uh, off topic. Um, so in the, before the 90s, uh, there were feuds across families. And these feuds were most of the time due to family stuff, not mafia stuff. So people who cheated on people, adultery on, on the other side, someone who had been um, disappointed by someone else's behavior. So it all became a matter of uh, answering with violence to what were considered um, scars to the honor of the family, essentially. So mafia feuds have, have existed in Calabria since the 60s and the 70s. There have been at least two main mafia feuds moments, so people that killed each other over the space of four or five years. But then in the 90s, uh, this stopped. And it stopped as well for another set of reasons, which had to do with the fact that some clans started accumulating capitals money, essentially, a lot of money from the so-called season of the kidnappings. So during the 70s, 80s, and uh, American listeners can maybe remember uh, the story of, of John Paul Getty, because that he was one of the Ndrangheta people who was kidnapped. There was also a movie a couple of years ago, I think, about that. So there were a number of uh, kidnappings that were uh, carried out in the 70s and 80s, um, and this made some of the clans, the main clans, uh, essentially gain a status, uh, a social status across the others, because they were at the same time feared and respected for this ability they had to coordinate such a large operation of kidnappings. We are talking about 200 and 250 kidnappings over the space of 10, 15 years. And a lot of them essentially ended up with, uh, with ransom being paid. So you can imagine the amount of money that was made from this, uh, this, this type of activity. This allowed some families to essentially step on and say, okay, you know what? Stop fighting. We are here to all, we all want the same thing. So why don't we do the wonderful thing that is called the Pax Mafiosa, so the mafia piece, where we kind of agree uh, who is who and who does what, uh, and we move on with our lives, being all very rich and powerful, with the demise of Cosa Nostra on one side and the availability of the cocaine trade that Cosa Nostra had kind of left behind on the other side. So it's a very long story short, <laughs> very long story, uh, but this essentially is what happened. So since the 90s, you see less and less feuds. There are sometimes some mafia feuds uh, in the same town. But as I said, a lot of the time, this is due to uh, family stuff. And sometimes it's due to business, so drug stuff, uh, mostly. Uh, drugs bring violence. We know that. So obviously, this is um, still something that is considered to be the signature of the mafia. Mafia is characterized, any mafia is characterized by the possibility to use violence. So you wouldn't be a mafia if you didn't have in your pocket the ability to use weapons to assert your presence with violence. So violence is always around the corner. It's just that the Ndrangheta has been quite good at avoiding it for the past 20, 25 years. And despite how many follow-up questions I might have on the history or the governance side, yeah. I'd rather focus on, on an angle that you've uh, touched upon a few times in terms of the, the family component and how important that is, because it's also 
factual that the, the operations of the Ndrangheta are by no means limited to either Italy or Europe. Do you mind speaking at a high level of, kind of how, uh, how widespread has their reach gotten at this point? Ah, well, uh, that's a, an interesting question because that's actually my main point of research. Um, so essentially, the so there are two things here to say. So on one side, you have extensive um, anti-mafia operations in uh, in Italy uh, that since pretty much the 70s have understood that the Ndrangheta business is not just in Italy. And they started poking around to different countries and saying, hey guys, you do have the Ndrangheta there, but it's very difficult to understand what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to have the Ndrangheta in the US, in Australia, in Canada? Which Ndrangheta, what do they do? So this has always been a problem. On the other side, there have been some elements of this um, mafia mobility that have emerged on their own without the Italians even being involved. So the Ndrangheta is present worldwide. And by worldwide, I don't mean that they are everywhere, but I mean that they have been active in many different countries and arrests of Ndrangheta men have been made in at least 28, 29 countries around the world. And among these countries, we have the United States, we have, the, we have Canada, we have Venezuela, we have Argentina, we have um, Uruguay, Bolivia, uh, Peru, we have Mexico, of course, we have uh, Australia, I can go on. But um, this, it doesn't mean that everywhere uh, you have an arrest of the Ndrangheta or more than one, you have the whole Ndrangheta. You might have just an individual doing some business there on behalf of the clan, or you might have just some activity, let's say, branching out. So it's much easier, for example, to launder money in Switzerland than it is in Italy. So this doesn't mean that the Ndrangheta is in Switzerland. It means that the the money of the Ndrangheta is in Switzerland, just to give you an example. So it is international in line with another element, which is pretty disturbing, because it's very difficult to explain uh, without being offensive to people, uh, which is the fact that the Ndrangheta exploits the Calabrian diaspora. And this is problematic, A, because uh, the Calabrian diaspora is huge. Uh, I am Calabrian and I live abroad, so I'm part of the Calabrian diaspora. Uh, In the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, Italy was in a state of despair and the southern part of Italy was in an even more despair state than anyone else. So half of the population of uh, Sicily and Calabria and other southern regions went abroad. So among this were families within which Drangheta codes were preserved and carried out elsewhere. So it's very difficult to understand this without being, uh, to talk about this without uh, people in the Calabrian diaspora abroad saying, oh, now you are, you know, discriminating against us in the same way as the Americans, no offense, they discriminate uh, against Sicilians, you know, at the beginning of the last century. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the, the risk is very real to associate a stigma. But it is true that uh, Ndrangheta clans have, at least in various occasions, have exploited their own community. It's within the community that they can thrive. And this is unfortunately something that we have to acknowledge and uh, even more so as I am Calabrian, I have to acknowledge that it's very difficult to disentangle the two things. 
So obviously, because of the Calabrian diaspora being everywhere and because of the different times in which migration happened, both mafia migration and um, normal migration, we are talking about a very, very stable uh, presence abroad. So most of the Calabrian migration happened in between the wars and obviously mostly in the Second World War. So we are talking about, you know, 50, 70 years of migration in certain countries, including uh, Canada, the US, Australia. So far, the farther you are, the longer you've been there. So we are talking about third generation already, if not fourth sometime. So in that sense, it's, it's very... Uh, the study of how this organization exists outside of Italy has to deal with the history of migration and the fact that and how what what does Calabrian does a Calabrian community elsewhere do <laughs> in a way does it exist it doesn't exist it's really difficult to disentangle things um, the more obviously the more present they are abroad the more they are changing and adapting to the territory so you'll find out if you do the research I do that at some point at some point you lose it you you were starting to research the drangheta and then you lose it all the way through it you find yourself in Perth in Australia looking at a wonderful gelato shop that someone told you oh this is a mafia business and it's like how the hell did I end up here and what this has to do with the drangheta probably nothing or everything god knows so it's really really difficult to follow these things up so to ask a, a follow-up question there, and, and one specific to Australia, because yeah. in, in reading your work, it was very interesting to see kind of, uh, you know, how the, the parallels between general migration set the initial foundation for these, and then so many other factors played into how things specifically built together. And I know you've focused on Australia extensively. Mm. Would you mind just speaking to some of kind of the peculiarities of whether it was from the, the migration or how, especially in more recent years, the illicit activities have kind of grown there? Yeah, Australia is an interesting case because it has uh, it's very similar to Canada and Germany in many ways, but it has its own peculiarities due to the distance and the fact that Australia, even if, even if it's a massive uh, country remains an island so it, it has the island mentality of being you know keeping things in in a way so in australia the ndrangheta has been pre- as, a, as a birthday actually there is a birthday of the ndrangheta which is the 15th of december 1922 as i told you before uh, ndrangheta uh, codes of culture are very ritualistic and very kind of um, esoteric in a way so you have all sorts of references to numerology, all sorts of references to religion. The main number is the number three, the obvious, obvious reference to the, the Trinidad, so to the, the God uh, one and, and three, one and trine. So the Ndrangheta has three founders. So the mafia has three founders in Italy in the same way as the Ndrangheta has three founders in Australia. So the three founders of the Ndrangheta were carried in to Australia in 15 of December 1922 on the ship King of Italy, which departed from Naples and arrived in Fremantle, Adelaide and, per- and uh, Melbourne. These three members of the Ndrangheta moved across the Australia and founded their own different um, locale. A locale of the Ndrangheta is a um, consortium of clans in a spe- specific place, in a local place. 
So obviously this is all very fascinating, but essentially that it means that we have 100 years of Dendrangheta in Australia. Uh, whether or not it's true that these three men traveled, who cares? The point is we have 100, 100 years of history. And this 100 years of history, you've seen it, you, you really see the whole evolution. You see the evolution of um, a city-based set of clans which come from Calabria. So the clans uh, members come from Calabria. They All of them are born in Calabria. They all carry the Ndrangheta affiliation with them. They start doing what they do best, which is to identify a market that is exploitable and low-key. In the case of Australia, there was the cannabis uh, boom in the 70s. Uh, they bought land. You remember what I told you about the kidnapping money? <laughs> a lot of kidnapping money went to Australia. Uh, and was used to buy land. It's called, um, so there was a famous um, quote, uh, basically, these people were uh, living in grass castles. They were calling it grass castles because they had massive amount of lands. They bought, uh, they had massive plantations. We're talking about 30 acres of cannabis, of in- Indian hems. Um, all around New South Wales uh, and they were building houses and they were building properties around this, uh, again, grass castles. So we are talking about, again, a certain number of plants, not that many. They were all from the same area. They literally left the village in Calabria altogether. We are talking about thousands of people who moved in one row. So they replicated everything they had. But then obviously things became very very complicated because Australia is not Calabria and therefore they had to adapt. And you, you fast forward from the 70s on today and you find a situation where um, you have activities linked to mafia clans in the same way you would have in Italy. So different clans do different things. Most of them are involved in drugs, uh, mostly cocaine and methamphetamines, but a lot of them are also involved into let's say, more nuanced kind of criminal activities, uh, which have to do with um, hijacking of public funds. Uh, a lot of them have uh, are involved in money laundering, and a lot of them are also involved into uh, what we call uh, predatory finance, in a way. So they, they mm-hmm. sort of declare, they, they have licit businesses, they don't declare you know, their income on one side or the other. They use a lot of front companies to move money around. So they did become quite uh, well-versed. Because we are talking about Australian citizens, we are not talking about Calabrian citizens. We are talking Mm -hmm. about people who were born in Australia, uh, have inherited certain type of mafia culture from their families. Uh, Mafia culture is a very powerful thing to inherit. Uh, yeah, but uh, anyway, they they are they are Australian, uh, so it's a very yeah. different set of behaviors. But in any case, the one thing that remains, and this is all very similar to Canada as well, as I said, uh, some of the mafia clans there behave in the same way. They remain attached to Calabria, if not physically, uh, emotionally. So the the emotional bond to the motherland, uh, whether because it's. Um, uh, it's something that their parents passed on, whether because they do go to school uh, with other um, Italian, Calabrian born or descent. Uh, there are There is a sense of community in Australia around being Italian and being Calabrian that is still very much part of the story. Australia was very much not nice with uh, Southern Italians. We were very much discriminated against, apparently. Uh, story tell, the story you know, of Australia is not all happy and shiny. They didn't want Southern Europeans 
in the desired list of people that they wanted to have in Australia. So there is this sense of um, identity among uh, members of the Italian Calabrian, especially Calabrian community, which is the largest uh, sub-Italian, let's say, group uh, in Australia, which has to do with the, the, let's say, gaining back the identity that you were once basically ashamed of. So you were um, made fun of because you were different when you were when your parents were uh, arriving into Australia. Now you take back the pride. So there is a lot of that dynamics going on, whereby there is a sense of sticking together to the group, which is very much similar to a lot of minorities actually around the world. So this is um, sometimes you have cases of people who are born in Australia and moved to Calabria. And eventually join mafia clans in Calabria because they have the right surnames, they belong to the right family, but they, they essentially are drawn back to Calabria in a sort of, a, um, if you allow me the comparison, a sort of a radicalization process that happens uh, in very, very mysterious ways. So the connections with Calabria is never severed, never. So you have all sorts of connections which might go from the criminal ones. So I'll send you drugs, you sell the drugs, you send me money. Or family ones. So I'll send someone over to marry someone and come back. From Australia, I go to marry in Calabria and come back. Or I send, let's say, someone to hide. So someone is hiding from the police. Let's send them to Australia. So there is quite a lot of um, exchange across the two, you know, the two realities. And for the remainder of the time that we have, I want to change tracks a little bit to another, I know a topic that is another uh, research thrust of yours that looks more on uh, shipping and its relation to especially cocaine trafficking, which as you alluded to before, is one of the major activities of the Ndrangheta clan internationally. Mm -hmm. So I guess to, as a quick point to start this, would you mind just mentioning uh, why shipping and ports are kind of at the center uh, of this activity? Well, so I started researching ports because of the Ndrangheta, actually. Uh, because I, when I was traveling to Melbourne and uh, precisely to Montreal um, and New York as well, everyone I talked to told me in the police and the authorities, they, they kept telling me, oh, you need to look at the port because, you know, the Ndrangheta has contacts in the port, they control the port. So I wanted to understand what essentially does that mean to control a port. So if you have been to New York, if you know how New York port works, you realize very soon it's impossible to control the port of New York and New Jersey. It's too big. It's around 40 miles radius. It's uh, in two different states. Um, so clearly it's impossible to control. But what essentially that means to control a port is that everything that goes through New York or through Montreal or in, through Mon- Melbourne has to have, in terms of illicit trade, a, a reference person or, or a reference group that allows the group behind the port who is organizing the shipment to keep an eye on the container or the shipment as it is. So basically, if I'm an Drangheta member uh, sitting in my Toronto house and I'm importing uh, drugs uh, because... Obviously, I have the right connections and I managed to ship in, let's say, 400 kilos of cocaine. My connection might agree with me that it's easier and better to have the traffickers handle everything 
so all I have to care about is to organize the movement of the cocaine from the port to Toronto. And th- let's say this cocaine arrives in New York, right? Because that's what... Uh, I, I don't have any control as an importer over the roots of uh, legal trade. So illegal trade, cocaine especially, moves on legal trade. So I can't invent new routes. I have to follow the ones that are already available. So if there is a service run by, I don't know, MSC, okay? So that goes from uh, Buenaventura to New York, stopping by three times in the process, then my best bet is to put the cocaine into the one container on that ship, on the MSC ship, and hope that it will make it to New York, essentially. So, But I need to have someone in New York that keeps an eye and alerts me on A, when the drugs has arrived, meaning when is the container actually in the port, whether there is any activity that around the port uh, by, let's say, customs and border authorities that I that might be identified, and therefore it's better if I don't go and get the drugs now, but maybe wait for a little while, so try and avoid inspections. And more importantly, try and see whether someone else is importing something else. So keeping an eye on the actual physical space of the port is what it means to control the shipment. And different groups have this capacity to do it. So it's not the Andrangheta thing to do this, apart from a few occasions, but there are some historical groups in each port city. Each port city has this, uh, which historically have held this role. It's a very historical role. So if you think about any port city that you might think of, port cities are phenomenal in that sense. They've existed since God knows when. So it's a very old kind of a business that has become the mo- one of the most globalized industry in the world. But the port still responds to very traditional ways of handling uh, the space. So this is where you find in New York uh, histories with with the so-called mob, with the Genovese and the Gambino family who have historically been holding the fort in uh, Brooklyn or New Jersey. And the same goes for Montreal, where the so-called Irish mafia, the West End gang, is still the one that has to interact with all the other groups when it comes to the port, including Ndrangheta. So this is how I wanted to, to look at it. So it is important because ports are... At the same time, both borders and entry gates. So it's uh, it's both. So if you you could look at the port either from the city side or from the seaside. So if you are an organized crime group, you have to sort of know both sides. You have to know how do I get the drugs into place A through the port. So I have to know how to move stuff through the sea, and this is what the traffickers do. So in that case, it might be a Mexican carrier, uh, usually they are the, the traffickers to North America. It could be um, someone else's who, uh, if you are on the other side of the world, Afghan um, group, some different states have different th- things. But obviously, if you are interested in, you are not just interested in bringing the drugs in, you are interested in moving it out of the port. So that's your main thing. So you have to have a presence in the city of whichever sort, whether it's a company that is, um, you know, that has a, a, a lorry or a truck that can enter the port, pick the container and get it out to a safe warehouse somewhere. So have a, let's say, a licit or seemingly licit company that can 
fake a shipment uh, and the shipment eventually contains drugs or you have to have a good distribution network. So it's not just enough to have the container bring the drugs in. You have to bring the container out or the drugs out of the port. So in that sense, you need someone to have eyes on the port. So this is why the port are fundamentally the key gates in. And uh, the more we progress into this, the more we know that security imports has become extremely sophisticated, but not at the point of being able to check everything that comes through. It's like the mail system. You can't imagine a world where every single letter uh, and every single small thing that goes through the postal system is checked. It's impossible. It's too much. It would take us, you know, God knows how long. So what you can do is to improve intelligence, improve other types of investigative tools and aim at disrupting flows of drugs before they get to the port or the moment they arrive. But once they are in the port, as a criminal uh, mind, you need to know how to get it out of the port as soon as possible and as safely as possible to a different place where you, your network or your partners will distribute ready for dealing, essentially. So this is how shipments eventually come in. And with cocaine, this is just really... The only way. So cocaine travels, of course, it travels with people sometimes. It travels with uh, individuals. But the amount of cocaine that you can carry with yourself will never be enough for the demand. So cocaine has to travel in large batches and will travel by sea. It does travel by sea, mostly. I know we don't have time to get into Mm -hmm. all of the ports, but maybe to just look at Montreal. And especially, I thought it was very interesting that the drugs in the port and out of the port weren't the same. So I might start with that question to look at the dynamics. Mm -hmm. And then the last question after that will just be, especially in terms of shipping and ports and organized crime, Mm -hmm. what do you see as some of the takeaways of your work for policymakers? Okay, so Montreal is interesting because it has, um, so Montreal is the second largest port of Canada, the biggest one in the eastern coast, because obviously Vancouver is much larger, but it's on the other side. Montreal is the one with the highest volume of trade with Europe, especially now it will have the highest volume of trade with the United Kingdom post-Brexit, so that's going to be interesting. And obviously the port of Montreal is, uh, has been uh, historically uh, very linked to organized crime, very linked to unions and organized crime, which is a very interesting history also in the United States, the labor unions at the port longshoremen associations and whatnot and organized crime. So the interest of the authorities into the port of Montreal has always been high. Okay, So every group in the country in Canada is interested in Montreal. It's easier to ship to Montreal than anywhere else. Um, So even if you are, let's say, not as embedded in Montreal as other groups are, Montreal is not a big city after all compared to others. Let's say it's only one million and a half inhabitants. So it's smaller than Toronto, obviously. So you will want, you will have to uh, ship things through Montreal at some point because it's easier and less risky to do so. So the difficulty might be that when you might need to use Montreal without actually being in Montreal as a criminal group. So the Ndrangheta, let's say, in the sense, they are mostly based in uh, Toronto area, Hamilton, okay? So it's Ontario-based groups. Um, they obviously have to use 
the port of Montreal alongside with the port of Halifax, but Montreal comes first. So clearly they had to develop in the years certain agreements with the other Italian groups, mostly related to loosely based Cosa Nostra families linked to Vito Rizzuto and the Bonannos in New York. Uh, to agree on some sort of, let's say, protection um, into the port. And they've done so for years. So in that sense, the drugs that arrive into Montreal are not destined to Montreal. They will go anywhere else. The same goes for the Els Angels. So the Els Angels um, sometimes, so let's say you are an Els Angels group based in Quebec. They are particularly uh, active in cocaine distribution and in cocaine importation as well, but you might um, find it easier as a group, even if you're based in Montreal, to ship things through Vancouver because you have a better control of Vancouver, you have a better entry point in Vancouver, you need a door to enter the port. Whichever door there is, the safer is the key, the person you are involving, the, the better, obviously, for your shipment. So if your door open is in Vancouver, but your business is in Montreal, what you'll end up doing is to have the drugs shipped to Vancouver and carry them either by car or wherever else, even if it takes six days, who cares, to Montreal. But this, And the same goes for other groups. So you might ship to Montreal and then use the Montreal connection to sell drugs elsewhere. So in that sense, uh, Canada is part... I don't think it's a peculiar thing of Canada in, that, in this sense, but the, dif- the differences across the two main ports, which are so far away from one another, have interesting have created interesting dynamics across how groups operate wi- within and out of Montreal port. What do you see, especially when it comes to ports and, and shipping and trafficking of, uh, of illegal narcotics, what do you see as some of the potential takeaways from your research for policymakers? Well, this is an interesting question. So obviously, the point is that we keep looking at cocaine trade or any type of illicit trade that goes through cross-border the way cocaine does, as if it is an intentional thing done by very skilled criminal minds. And it isn't. So all, if not if not all, a lot of the global trade in narcotics, uh, especially cocaine, is a product of globalization. So it's a product of the liberal market. And definitely the ports, the maritime sector is the, the essentially one of the most liberal markets ever. So where you have truly international networks and um, all the nodes of production are completely separated from one another. So you don't have any real standpoint. So clearly there is, a, there is this, this thing that keeps uh, being thrown off as uh, criminals today are able to do this and are able to do that. That's not true. Anyone would eventually be able to do this because the system itself is, is that. There is an element of naivete, I think, into understanding, let's say, corruption. Let's call it corruption in ports. So there is this idea that there will be a... Um, an organized crime group that will come in and try to corrupt the border agent or the port worker or 
something else on that line. So they and it's a naivete in the sense that um, a lot of law enforcement think of this as an occasional thing. And they look for people who would be more corruptible. They try and create certain types of checklists that say, oh, because you lost your job and because your family has problems, then you are more prone to be corrupted. And therefore, they act on that. While instead, what I found is that it's it's really not the point. It's really not the case. People get involved into illicit trades, into the ports for a number of different reasons. And the most problematic aspect is not occasional corruption of the poor border force agent who, I don't know, can't reach the end of the month because he has a daughter with cancer. I don't know. But the problem remains with high-level corruption. And the high-level corruption, I mean corruption that has to do with the maritime sector and the port system overall. The port system, once you start looking at it, the port economy is done uh, in pretty much an oligarchy, monolithic way. So there are like four or five actors in the whole globe and they sort of um, agree on certain policies in a pretty much on a yeah oligarchy way. And it's extremely, let's say, powerful to look at the agreements that these companies put in place with one another that will eventually facilitate and not dismantle illicit trade. So the agreements across uh, the port sector actors around the world is what creates criminality, not the fact that there are obviously uh, a few port workers or a few border agents who might or might not be corruptible. So the focus obviously has always been on the single individual and not on the system of the port economy, which is uh, essentially has legalized corruption in, a, in many ways. Uh, and, and I understand why this is the case. The case is obviously it's too difficult to look at that, especially because, and this is the last point, investigations of this sort into illicit trade remain, unfortunately, very national bound. It's Canadian, uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police that looks at the port of Canada. Is uh, Customs and Border Force, uh, which is a completely different type of agency in the US, if not ICE when it comes to national borders. It's, uh, I don't know, the Italian uh, Guardia di Finanza that looks at Italy. So you have different fragmented forces and they look at one aspect of this and can't look at it fully, obviously, because this is a, a truly international trade. So obviously, once you look at this, uh, you are bound to focus on what catches the eye, which is the occasional corruption rather than the big system of power. But that's, again, I understand why, but clearly it's missing the point. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of your uh, all your knowledge and expertise. This was it's a great good. conversation. I'm glad you find it interesting. I always like to talk to different audiences, as I told you, because it helps me put things in order in my head and get out of my academic mind. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions and to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at DrugsHistory or over email, DrugsHistory at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon. Thank you.